trust you've been enjoying the study through 1 Timothy. I know I sure have. I've been enjoying it because, really, this is Paul's letter to Timothy, a young man, a young pastor, and it's basically leading him and guiding him, instructing him what the conduct of the church ought to be. And if you remember, I entitled 1 Timothy fighting the good fight in the church because he talks about doing these things to fight the good fight and it's in the church not that there isn't a fight outside the church well we've talked about before in the, in the first part of the context of chapter one we've talked about false teaching he begins in warning them about false teaching and rightly so that is the priority to make sure we're teaching correctly make sure we're not allowing false teaching to come in that happens so much. In fact, we see that happening down through the ages and even in our day and age. And now he switched to prayer. So you're thinking of the duty of the church, and the duty of the church is to pray. But what is the number one thing that we should be praying about? For the salvation of people. And so we saw that last week, and we're going to continue that. You remember at the beginning of chapter 2, he talked about the priority of prayer, that, that this is what I want you to do first of all. We talked about the persons of prayer. What are the persons of prayer? For all men, but he mentions those who are in authority. And it does check us a little bit, does it not? I mean, we have to remember, even if we don't agree with a lot of things that come down the pike, they are not our enemies, they are our ministry. And they can come to Christ just like we came to Christ. And God can save sinners just like he saved us. So the persons of prayer. And then he gives a couple of purposes for prayer. One, we need to do those in authority because Romans 13 tells us that God, God moves authority. Secondly, we were to pray for peace and tranquility. Now, this is not R&R &R looking for opportunities to, you know, looking for opportunities to get called to a ministry in Hawaii and, you know, lay on the beach and kind of thing. That's not the kind of tranquility he's talking about. It's tranquility in society, one that we're not persecuted, one that we're not persecuted because we deserve to be persecuted, and the other is not to be persecuted because we're believers, and we shouldn't be persecuted, and yet we are. And then he tells us to pray for the salvation of all men. What's really interesting is, is there still is this idea of the gospel through all of this. What was the problem with the false teachers? They got the gospel wrong. What is the priority of the church especially in prayer, prayer for salvation. And one of the things that's very, very difficult for us to do with all of the things that go on in the world and all of the things that go on in our life, we are still to have our nose to the grindstone, doing our Father's business, leading people to Christ, helping them to grow. That's what God, the Holy Spirit, is working in our lives and in the church. That's what we need to do. So he's going to talk now about the gospel, but then he's going to move right back into prayer. And one of the things that he's going to talk about is mediation, salvation through Christ mediation. And I just want to say this, just an introduction of mediation. If you're thinking of the business world where a lot of times they need mediation or even countries need mediation or even Political parties need mediation. A mediator is called in. And so there's two parties that are at odds. That's the basic idea. Now with this in the business world, and the secular world, they always try to get an independent mediator. Someone who's not going to be biased one way or the other. Someone who's going to come up with the great ideas that both sides will accept and there will be peace. Well, that is the way it is in the secular world. That is not the truest picture of Christ. Christ is not 
an independent agent here. The mediation of Christ is that Christ is God and became a human. He added humanity to his deity so we could die on the cross. And that was his mediation. So he's the perfect mediator between God and man because he is God. He's the God-man. And he's the perfect mediator because he procured the perfect salvation on the cross. So we're going to talk about salvation through Christ's mediation. In fact, we'll take a look at Christ's salvation through his ransom. He's, he's a ransom. uses that word, so we'll take a look at that. Then Paul is going to say salvation through his apostle. He is an appointed apostle to preach the gospel. He's an appointed apostle to the Gentiles. Can I hear an amen from all you Gentiles out there? All right. And then I want to talk about verse 8, if we get that far, salvation through Christ's church. That's us. This is where we get to be ambassadors for Christ, share this message. So turn in your Bibles again to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll work our way through verses 5 down to 8. So let me go ahead and read that, and then we'll pray. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a very interesting phrase here, I am telling the truth and I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the man in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, it's one thing for us to hear the plans of a church or the priorities of a church uh, or of a mission board. But it's so good to hear it from the word of God, exactly what we've been called to do. And we do have to fight the good fight in the church. And we have to fight the good fight to stay on true doctrine and to keep out false teaching. But we also have to fight the good fight in sharing the gospel and in prayer for all men for salvation. Father, we ask that you would teach us now. Teach us something about Christ's mediation. Teach us about the fact that he paid the ransom for us. Something about the apostles' authority to the Gentiles and then something about us and our responsibility as the church. And we'll thank you, Father, and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's pick it up in verse 5 then. It is, as I said, salvation through Christ's mediation. We're going to talk about that. Now, I've already given us the uh, context that it was God's desire that we pray and it was God's desire for all men to come to Christ. Let's look at this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Now, we did point out something here last week. Uh, it tells us in chapter 2, verse 4, God who desires all men to be saved. Now, we want to keep this theologically correct. We are to pray. We are to pray that all men come to Christ. But the question will be, well, how does that work with election? How does that work with Ephesians 1, 4? For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, when it says God desires all men, it uses the Greek word thelo, which is a word that can mean in some context wish or want. He didn't use the word bulamai, which means decree. So he has not decreed that all men will be saved. And of course, we know that. Not all men do come to Christ. But the desire of his heart is for all men to come. And last week, we took it one step further, that even though God is a holy God and a righteous God, and this world needs to learn that because all they say is he's a loving God, they need to know he's a holy God, a righteous God, and will bring wrath. We looked at scripture that said he 
does not look forward to that wrath. He's not a wrathful God. He would want them to come to Christ and repent. So we see that about our, our God. But nevertheless, we're back to business again. We're back to the idea that we are to pray for all men and their salvation. And we are, what is salvation? It is verse 5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now I want to talk here for just a moment about this first phrase, there is one God. We could spend time talking about the Trinity, and we have been in our Sunday school. And of course, Trinity is one God in essence. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He is. Both Israel and Christianity is monotheistic. But his, the Trinity is that he subsists in three individual persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I don't fully understand it, but I fully embrace it because it's in the word of God. And then because of that, I just don't, I just don't have tension about it. I, I accept it, and it's seen over and over. But I think the point here in him talking about the one God is in reference to the Old Testament where it says, there are no other gods besides me. In other words, if there is only one God, then there is one God to whom you must come to know. There is only one God to whom you must understand how to placate the wrath of God, which is already upon all sinners. And I think that is really the point. Uh, in John 17, 3, it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. There's no other. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, this makes us look, I suppose, outside the world as we're just so exclusive. No, we're not. We're just truthful. We're just truthful. And you know what? There could be a thousand different ways out there how to get to heaven. But none of them are right. Only one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father. I'm sorry if that offends, but it shouldn't offend. I mean, if there are five medicines out there and four of the five don't work, wouldn't you want someone to tell you the one that is the right one? Of course you are. But in our day and age, in our culture, we are, you know, I don't know what we are. Okay, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, uh, psychologist, I don't know what we're, but I do know we're sinful. I know that the Bible tells us that. And it affects every area of our life, even our thinking and our heart. So this is the gospel. And this one God is a holy God. This is what we have to understand. In other words, he's holy. And guess what? We're not. He cannot look upon sin. And we live in sin as sinners. How will there ever be a relationship between God and man? How will God's wrath ever be placated? And you can see we're already moving to the idea. It's Christ. He's the mediator. But we do need to understand this. And we, we looked at this this morning, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world. Holy Spirit is out there. He's working all the time. He's convicting the world of sin we're sinners of righteousness of Christ's righteousness and our lack thereof and of the judgment that comes and so this is what we have to know about as believers this is what we have to be able to explain about the gospel you really really cannot just say well I'm going to share the gospel and just tell them about the love of Christ I mean I suppose if they know that they're sinners yeah maybe that's what they need now but it is very true that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin. It's sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So man is in trouble. How will he placate the wrath of God? How will this whole idea of a holy God and a sinful man ever find compatibility? And by the way, as we do talk about God's holiness and we see our sinfulness, we see some verses in the Bible that show us our sinfulness. And I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 64, 6. And I'm turning to Isaiah 64, 6, that we see our sinfulness. 
But it's, it's an understanding. You could go into the Old Testament and you could say, well, the Old Testament seems to emphasize holiness, where the New Testament seems to emphasize love. I can see how you could say that. And then it can even be taken further than that, that the God of the Old Testament is all about anger and vengeance, but the God of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ, is all about love. That is incorrect. The reason why holiness is emphasized in the Old Testament is so that we know we're sinners. Ever since Adam led the entire human race into sin and passed it down to all of us, that's the issue. Because God is holy and we're not. We need to understand. Now, the New Testament, yes, many times it does emphasize love, but not at the exclusion of unrighteousness in man, not at the ex exclusion of God's holiness, but it does emphasize love because once you understand you're a sinner, you now are compelled to find out what it is you need to do to be forgiven or who it is who did the work of forgiveness, which is the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. I always use the illustration of, you know, we can't take away our own sins. It's like having a white Corvette and having a greasy, oily, filthy rag and going out there and try to polish it. The more you try to polish it, the dirtier it gets. But do you want to know what this verse really suggests? The filthiness of sin. This word here for the filthy garment is a word that's used in the Old Testament for menstruating. It's, it's that kind of a filthy rag, the worst kind of a, a filthy garment that you would ever want to be involved in. That's what our sin is to God. And so we need a mediation, and just like the Corvette, we can't take away our own sin. We can't take away the filth of our sin. It has to be through a mediator, and it is one mediator. That's what it says. There's one God and one mediator. Not many ways to God, but one mediator. Now, what does a mediator work? And we have, we gave that illustration in the very beginning of business world, and they need a, an independent you know, arbitrator and try to bring in together. But this is a mediator since man can't do anything about his sin, can't do anything about his position. He must fall upon that mediator. The word mediator, the Greek means middle in between two parties that are at odds with each other. Or one writes this, it's a mediator is one who works to remove disagreement and is a go-between and a reconciler. And I could just rewrite that and say it's a, the, the, mediate, the mediator is one who works to remove sin and be a go-between and a reconciler. And so that is the issue. The issue is between a holy God and sinful man. And we, we, we find words in, in the Bible like reconciliation. And that's a good word. And this is a time that you would want to bring something like this in. Also the word ransom. A payment has been made. We want to understand that because he's, it, Paul is explaining what a mediator is, not that Timothy needs to know it. I don't think a lot of things here that are written is something that Timothy just didn't know. Like when he tells Timothy that he's an apostle. Gee, I've been with you all these years, Paul, and I never knew that. He is telling him because it's true. He is telling him because these are the things that are to be promoted about Christ being the mediator, Christ being the savior. This needs to be the emphasis of the church. It's for the church if you think about it. Now let's talk about the mediator, the two sides, and what we find out is that man is not only a sinner and does not have fellowship with God, that must be brought to us by Christ when we trust in him, but man is described as an enemy of God. And, you know, there would be a lot of people that would argue with that, obviously people who don't believe in Scripture, but it's true. If you see someone who's religious, but they don't know 
and have never trusted Christ as their Savior, and so they really don't know the Lord, but they're religious, and they try to do good works, you start talking to them about Christ dying on the cross, faith alone, and Christ alone, and they'll become your enemy too pretty quick. I've, I've had that happen to me. I'm sure you have as well. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. You know, I got up here this morning, and I thought to myself, the first thought that came to mind is, I hope I'm not drinking Dr. Galuza's water. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not going down that road. Okay, uh, for once. Okay, Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When you think about reconciliation, it really does pinpoint being a mediator. You've got one party that is an enemy. What's interesting, if you really think about this and you look at scripture, it's not that God moved away from man. God is there always. But man sinned and hid himself. Man sinned and moved away from God. Man sinned and rejects God and rejects his son. So calling man an enemy is exactly right. So it is kind of a technical thing, but when you think about reconciliation, it's not like, you know, God's over there mad on one side and Adam's there mad on the other side. We're the enemies. Because God's the one that was in Christ reconciling the world to himself it's us and so all that talk when we talk about election and all of that and you know there may be difficulties and whatever just remember that the person who rejects christ their entire life it's them they are responsible they are responsible for their own decision and ultimate rejection against god so we see this idea of reconciliation, and reconciliation is bringing a holy God and sinful man together. And of course, as I just read, 2 Corinthians 5.9, it bears repeating, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he had committed to us the word of reconciliation. You know, I could have just read that verse and we could all went to eating turkey for our potluck. That says it all. That's what Paul is doing here in talking to Timothy. Now, notice it says in 1 Timothy, it says one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. Why would he say the man? Why would he not say the God man? Why does he need to say the man? Well, let me first of all say what it's not saying. This is not a doctrinal verse that someone who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ goes to and says, aha, you see, he's not deity, he is a man. Well, the truth of the matter is he is a man now, but he's also God. And the best way, I think, to describe that is he's always been God, God the Son, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 8.58, where Jesus said, before Abraham was I am, and I believe that was a reference to the I am in Exodus chapter 3 where God says, tell them I am has sent you. They understood it. They wanted to stone him. Now, there's people today in our background, uh, that's the wrong word, in, in our generation that look at their own background, today's contemporary, and say, well, they didn't understand it correctly. Oh, no. They understood it, and that's why they got mad and wanted to stone him. There was also a conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so as we're looking at this, um, he, it, it is a truth. It is a truth that he is a man now. But the God-man, and it's going to heavenly weigh on the fact that he's the mediator. If just the Son of God did not take humanity, 
he would never be able to pay for our sins. He would never be able to pay for the ransom. He'd never be able to mediate. He'd never be able to reconcile. Why? Because the wages for sin is death, and God cannot die. God and the Godhead, all three of them, are eternal, and they have they they are they did not create one another, which would be absurd, wouldn't it? They have always existed, which is actually logical. And they are the life givers and can never cease. If God were to cease at this moment, don't worry, because we would too. And that'd be the end of everything. There would be nothing. But that will never happen. And so we see here that there has to be an emphasis on the fact that Jesus Christ is a man. You know, you go through history and you look at the study of Christ, Christology, and who the early church and then the early church fathers and then some of the false teachers came in and who they thought he was. And it's like a pendulum. At one time, they thought he was only God and wasn't a man. That was Gnosticism, and that's, that's really what was going on at this time. And then later on in the history of the church, it was some have said erroneously, well, no, he, he's a man, and he's not God. And there's crazy ways of explaining that. Or some may have said, well, no, he's God and man. He's 50% God and 50% man. No. He is fully God because God must be full all the time. He cannot be less than himself. But he added humanity. That's what Christmas is about. You know, I'm being a little theological here, but beloved, it's not all about tinsel and lights. There's a reason why we do those things. It's because the God-man came. He became a man so that he could die on the cross. And this is what makes him the perfect mediator. He's not an independent mediator in the sense that he's not associated with either side. He is God. God the Son. And he is man. Sinless man who is able to die in the place of man because he's also God. The only mode, the only way of salvation, people like to suggest possibly, well, God's God. He could do anything he wants. He, does, he didn't have to do this, this way of salvation. No, I believe this is the only way of salvation. Jesus said again, I am the way. There's no other way. I am the truth. There's no other truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. You know, I don't really have a problem at all thinking that, that, that the way this has worked out is the only way. What I have a problem with or what we could possibly struggle with is, Lord, why would you do it? Why would you send your son and sacrifice him for sinners? No. Why would you send your son to die on the cross for a sinner like me? That's it. And the answer would be by the grace and by the love of God. And at this point, that's when you need the emphasis of love in the New Testament because we already got the fact that God is holy and we're sinners. And so it does become one mode, one way. And I believe it was the only way. And by the way, you know, we, we, see, we see what's going on in, in the church these days that there are those who are are in the church and they, they just cannot understand the death of Christ. And, and some of them who profess to be Christians say, why, that is nothing less than cosmic child abuse. And I dare say, anyone who would say that would, I can't see how they'd be a Christian. Because when I think of Christ dying for me, yes, it was it was the world's worst calamity and tragedy, no doubt. But it was for us. It was for me. It was for you. In fact, it was for all sinners. And it, and it becomes the most precious thing I could ever think of because it's the biggest and the greatest demonstration of his love. God demonstrated his love in that while we were sinners and enemies, Christ died for us, in our place, as our substitute, 
becoming the perfect mediator. Now, I want to just cover one more point. You know, I talked about the one God, and we have to figure out how to placate the wrath of God, how to satisfy the wrath of God, how to remove the wrath of God. Christ does that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and let's look at verse 18. If you really, really want to have the Roman road to salvation, start with verse 18. And this is sometimes so unlike the way we present the gospel, but here's how Paul presented the gospel. It begins with this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Remember Dr. Deleuze said, who push down, push it down on purpose, hide it, get rid of it, throw it in the trash can, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It begins with the wrath of God. So how do we placate the wrath of God? Can Christ's death on the cross placate the wrath of God? Yes. Stay in Romans, but turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 9. He's also teaching about justification by faith, but that means the moment we place our faith in Christ, he not only forgives our sins, but he gives us his righteousness. And watch this, Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Christ's death on the cross placates the wrath of God. It satisfies God's righteousness, and it satisfies God's wrath. His wrath upon all sinners, not as a vengeful God, wanting us to, to, to uh, repent and come to him. But if we do not, the moment we die, the next moment we are in eternal punishment and his hand comes down. But when Christ died on the cross and when the believer trusts in what Christ did, that hand doesn't come down. It goes away. Actually, it goes out to come be able to come to him through Christ. And that's what we have. Now let's move on. I spent a little time on that. Uh, let's, let's move on, probably move a little quicker. Let's look at the second point, verse 6, salvation through Christ's ransom. And, you know, I appreciate Paul does this because sometimes when a preacher preaches, you say, well, you said the same point, but you said it three different ways. That's what we're supposed to do. That's how you can understand, and that's what Paul does. So Paul's going to really enlarge the idea of a mediator by bringing in the ransom. You know, I've already brought in the idea of reconciliation, but I think that's a very obvious one. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, who, and he's talking about Christ, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time well you just have to love that fact that Christ gave himself we find out that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son we don't believe it's cosmic child abuse and here we find out that Christ gave himself and I do not at all believe that that is cosmic suicide it is in fact as it says the testimony, the greatest testimony ever given at the proper time. Well, he gave himself as a ransom. And what does it mean to be a ransom? Well, the word means it's a price paid. Something being there as a leverage or holding someone into maybe even bondage but a price is paid to set them free. Or another one says, to set someone free from captivity or bondage figuratively of Christ's atonement for sin. What we need to understand is, and we have, we've, we've, we've talked about this recently, is what debt? I'm a sinner. Okay, I'm going to hell. Okay, 
I need to trust Christ to be a savior, uh, my Savior. What, what debt is there? It's the debt that we incurred and provoked when we sinned against, number one, the holiness of God, and two, the law of God. We are now under the debt of wrath and punishment. That's the debt. We will never be able to do that for ourselves, but Christ paid that payment. Christ himself tells us this. You know, why, why did Jesus come? I mean, if you think if you're the king of kings, you could have the red carpet rolled out and you could have royalty and you could have everybody serving you. Jesus said, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, in what way? And to give his life a ransom for many, to pay that price. Another scripture that talks about that is Galatians 4, verse 5. Christ came so that, verse 5 in Galatians 4, so that he might redeem, buy back, pay back, pay, pay it and buy us back out of bondage, out of sin, out of the punishment, so that we might, he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Wow. You see the two things that are brought up there? that we have the debt to God and his holiness and the law because we've sinned against it. There's punishment. Christ came to buy us back. And what did he do? He made us his sons, the adoption of sons. Unbelievable, unbelievable. That is love. Now, let's look at this term for a moment. Not to, listen, I'm not trying to stir up anything. E even though I may have that reputation, I'm not. I really am not. I, I am looking at this as we need to discuss it for a moment. It says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, again, there are those of us who do believe that the Bible teaches election, that we must be chosen. I, and I am one of them because I think the Bible is pretty clear on that. Not everyone takes that, but we don't ostracize anyone here who doesn't take that. But we've talked about it anytime you want to. But here I think I have to bring it up because it says he gave himself for a ransom of all. So which was it? Did he die for all men or did he die for only the elect? Well, I think when you understand it properly, you can put these two together. Basically, when Christ died on the cross, his death was sufficient for all the world for every sinner out there, for every sin. And if all the world would come, it would cover their sin. But let me finish it. His death on the cross was sufficient for the world, but efficient for the elect. It worked for the elect. It worked for the elect because God drew them. And they came to Christ. Again, I know we struggle with all this, but, but I just want to say this. And I'm speaking to my uh, Calvinistic friends and saying, hey, it's okay to understand this. It's okay to understand that he died for the sins of the world. But the purpose for his death was for the elect, those who were going to come. Those who were going to come because no one can come. Why? Ephesians and Romans tells us that we are spiritually dead. If you're spiritually dead, you don't want any part of it. And I, I, rem I remember being spiritually dead, not wanting any part of it. But it has to be the Lord who gives us that spark of understanding of our sin and then of salvation. And we come without that, no one would come. But you say, well, doesn't he give that divine spark to everyone? Well, then everyone would come. And I think to show that it had to be God who had to come down and save man, you're on your own. Are you going to come to Christ? And if you come to Christ, it's because he drew you. Three quick passages. And uh, if we open up Pandora's box, then we do. And we'll just preach more on it. I mean, I mean in a right way. <laughs> So, first of all, I, I think of, I can't help but think of our, our recent study 
in the book of Ephesians. I just don't know how you get around this. Ephesians 1, 4, God chose us. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he would be holy and blameless before him. I understand that how that's sometimes explained, that he looked down through the corridors of time and saw that we were going to choose him, and so he chose us. Now, I think that can only happen with a husband and a wife. The husband thinks he chose his wife, but he didn't. She chose him and worked it so that he would chose her. But when it comes to a sovereign God, it had to be that. And I want to just stop for a moment. Think about this for a moment. Here's the sinful man. They're all dead spiritually. Not one is going to come to receive his son. And so he has to say, I will reach down and I will choose some. And then what? The second one is God draws. We think of John 6, 44. And this is what did it with me. And, and uh, those of you who know John Ward, uh, I didn't always hold this position, but I would go up and bother John Ward and we would talk about this, and it started to make sense, but it never really did. But it wasn't until I read John 6, 44, I just couldn't get around it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So God draws. God has to do the drawing. Now, you're thinking, well, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be saved. Well, it does when you're a sovereign God. You know what it says in Romans, right? What it says in Romans, let me read it. Let me read the golden chain. And I know we could talk about the words, but just listen to this for just a moment. Listen to the work of a sovereign God. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined he also called. Well, what if he called and they didn't come? Doesn't say that. And these whom he called, he justified. They came and they were saved. They placed their faith in Christ. And then he says, and those, these whom he justified, he also glorified. Whoa, whoa, we're still here. But in the mind of a sovereign God, it's done. It was done in the beginning before the foundation of the world. And the idea that God just merely looks down through the corridors of time, it makes him it makes him a cheap, optimistic God. He's just good at calculating. That's all. No, our sovereign God. And you look at, you look at Israel, I chose you. Israel's still having trouble choosing him. You look at the Apostle Paul. I would say that Christ invaded his life. You know, we say the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, and the Holy Spirit would never invade our life and do something against our will. He did with the Apostle Paul. And I believe that's how he does it in the heart, and that's how you ex explain amazing grace. Once I was blind, but now I see. You know, that mediation there in the beginning is the mediation from God. But again, explaining how can Christ die for all? Well, he died for all sins. And if all sinners would come to him, it would cover. Well, isn't that a waste? No, because the elect came. The elect come. Anyway, yeah, that's not even in my notes. So I just kind of really went down that trail. But anyway, uh, it ends up understanding that the elect do come. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come. Will come to me. And then, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So we certainly all agree, I believe we all agree, that once saved, always saved, you are secure in your faith. We're secure because it depends upon the, the, the power and the sovereignty of God, as did our salvation, though Christ died for all. And I think we can say that, and I think we can pray for all. I think 
We can pray for everyone that they would come to Christ. God desires, he wants, he wishes all men would come to Christ. He's not happy that they don't. He's not happy that they sin in unbelief. He's not happy that he has to send them to hell. He wants them to repent. But for his own divine reasons, he did not bring everyone. That may have very well cheapened it. That may have, well, everybody's saved. It doesn't matter. And if everybody's saved, why don't we just do whatever we want to do? Why don't we go join a terrorism group? Why not? Well, and then he concludes with this. In the same verse, verse 6. The testimony given at the proper time. This is the testimony of salvation. The fact that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. This is our message. This is our message. And by the way, don't say, well, if, you're, if you lean towards Calvinism, you don't evangelize. Some of the greatest evangelists have been Calvinists. Charles Spurgeon being one of them. Saying, you know what? The pressure's off me. Sooner or later, I'm going to come across one whom the Father is drawing. I'm going to share the gospel and they will come. And this is our message. So, so we shouldn't say, well, you know, maybe they're not the elect. We don't know who is the elect and who isn't. We're to, to put the word out to all men. And we're to pray for all men. I've heard of ignorant comments like, you know, I don't pray for them. I don't, I don't uh, share the gospel because I don't think they're the elect. And when they're in hell, I don't want them to have more guilt upon them in, 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 in hell. Oh, it was really bad. And that came from a professor of theology. The proper time then came this testimony. God had, I mean, when we look at God in his redemptive program, he's sovereign. When you look at the Old Testament and the prophecies of Christ, he's sovereign. He says it's going to happen and it happens. There is everything you look at in the study of God and the sovereignty of God, he's sovereign. And so you have to admit that he's sovereign in salvation too. He's a sovereign God. Here, at the proper time, reminds us of Galatians 4, 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, became a man, born under the law, did everything righteously and perfect as a man so he could be our perfect mediator so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's the proper time. Quickly, look at verse 7. This one I call salvation through Christ's apostle. That's what he's going to say here. For this, for this, for what I just explained, Christ dying for all, this testimony, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So this is Paul saying this is what he does as an apostle. Now, it's kind of interesting because Timothy knows he's an apostle. He's been with him all this time, meaning he has apostolic authority. When he teaches, he teaches with authority and accuracy. What he teaches, what he preaches, and what he writes. Not that he's perfect, but all of that is correct. There isn't anything that we would say that he taught us in the scriptures, in his preaching, or in his writing that's errant. That would be wrong. But there's an interesting phrase here, and he says, I am telling the truth and I am not lying. Was Timothy accusing him of being a liar? You're not an apostle. Just like everybody says, you, you weren't with the original 12. No, Timothy wasn't doing that. Timothy probably heard all of these arguments. But I get the idea that these false teachers that we talked about in chapter 1, all throughout his life and his ministry, would say this, he's not an apostle. And Paul, uh, Paul would say, well, no, the Lord came to me and called me, and we've gone over that. You're lying. And so, you know, it's, it's very interesting when we say that the, the Holy Spirit, when he writes Scripture, it's every word of God, but he also uses the personality of the writer. Here's Paul's personality. I'm not lying. I'll tell you, he probably always said that. He probably said that a lot. Probably people who knew him, he probably told them dozens of times. I'm not lying, it's true. But he says this like four times in the New Testament in his letters. 
I'm not lying. It's true. And then the other thing that I think we want to be cognizant of, and I, and I love this, is that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm going to show you in just a moment. Now, I do know Paul's protocol was to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. It shows you how much Paul loved his own kinsmen. In fact, that's one of the times when he says, I wish I could give up my salvation for their salvation. And he says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. But he was called to the Gentiles. So he would go to the Jews, and after they rejected him, most of them, then he would go to the Gentiles. And this is in keeping with what we read in Scripture. In Galatians chapter 2, we believe his first epistle that he wrote, verses 7 through 9, he went up to see the other apostles, and it was clear that, that Peter was called to the Jews, the circumcised, but he, Paul, was called to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. Verses 7 through 9, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. That was his ministry. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, that's the apostolic office, the apostolic authority, just like the others, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might do what? Go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. But Paul, you always go to the house of Israel. God wasn't saying you can't speak to anyone other than a Gentile. In fact, Paul, in this letter to Timothy, is saying, pray for all men. Speak to all men about the gospel. We see other places where it is written. It says, but I have written very boldly to you, Romans 15, on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. He's an apostle. He's given them apostolic authority. What he's, the instruction he's given them is true because God is guarding what he says and, and teaches and preaches and writes. He says, the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So when he says this here in this passage, a teacher to the Gentiles, he's talking about his ministry to which he had been called. And then finally, we get to this application, and we'll be wrapping it up here. You know what they say about the pastor's final point. Well, in verse 8, it says, Therefore, because of this, because the church is to be about praying for the salvation of all men. Because the church is to be sharing the gospel for the salvation of all men. Because this is what the gospel is and not what those false teachers are teaching. There's my conclusion. I want the men in every place to pray. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. That's what we are to be about as a church. Evangelistic prayer. This is what he talked about in the first four verses. And we are to be involved in prayer. Pray about, pray about those who are hurting right now in our church and the discomforts that they're having, the things that they're facing physically. But we're praying for salvation of people. And we're praying for the growth, spiritual growth of people who are going through those things. Quickly, without enough time, it says, I want the men in every place to pray. Now, he is not saying women can't pray. He's not even saying that like on a Wednesday night when we gather together, we do our Bible study, and then we pray. He's not saying women can't pray. The reason I know that is because in Acts 1, verse 14, it says, These all, all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So 
was fine. But what this is talking about, it's giving us a little precursor. He's talking about leadership. And we're going to come across that verse where it says, I do not permit a woman to teach men or to assert authority over men. We'll talk about that. But I believe that's what this is a precursor to. I want the men. And by the way, shouldn't it be that way? Shouldn't the men of this church be the leaders in their family? Praise God for godly mothers. Praise God for family wives who, are, who seem to be always pleading with their husbands. Go to church. Go to the men's meeting. Grow in Christ. Read the Bible. Can you do devotions? Shouldn't be her having to do that. We should be doing that. I remember um, many years ago with, when John Ward was here, uh, we would have communion on a Sunday night, and then there would be a time when uh, men would come up, uh, share a testimony, and pray. And it, it was asked that only the men would do that, not because we didn't want to hear with the women, not because they didn't get it, but because men needed to be developed as leaders. So let's just get off that whole thing about men and women here and just look at, I want men to be the spiritual leaders in every place. And this is what you need to be spiritual leading about, praying for salvation and talking about sharing the gospel. Now, I guess while we're still, we're still in Pandora's box, let's talk about lifting up holy hands. In the Old Testament, they did indeed lift up holy hands. That was an expression. I don't think this is necessarily wrong if we do this, but I, I do think at this point we need to understand it's an expression, and that was their expression. It's an expression of their heart and of giving themselves to God. Well, you don't have to do that to have that in your heart and mean that in your heart. So, uh, you know, I, I agree with, with John, John MacArthur. He writes, but Paul's emphasis here is not on a particular posture for prayer. God forbid that we would ever get into that. Rather, it is an expression of the heart and hands giving ourselves to God. And then he closes out with a good reminder about prayer, a good reminder about the Christian life. Do this, do this prayer, do this ministry as a church without wrath and dissension. It just doesn't make sense if we're all fighting, if we're fighting each other, or we're, if we're mad, you know, as if to say, well, you know, I'm mad at everybody. I'm mad at the world, and I don't consider them my ministry, and I'm not even sure I consider the people in my church my ministry either. That would just be so wrong. You're not even thinking of the gospel. You're thinking of you, your problems, whatever, whatever happened. Put it aside, really. Put it aside. You know what? Can I say it? Grow up spiritually. It's time to be mature. Put those little things aside. Do not create dissension. Let's get going. You know, we talk about unity, and a lot of times in this church, we don't always exalt unity. We don't exalt unity with ecumenical churches that we're all getting together to do the same thing for God. Oh, no, we're not. We all have different gospels. But when it comes to the church, those who agree, there ought to be unity. There ought to be peace and unity, preserving the unity of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 3, we heard that all last year. So this is what we have. One writes this, The greatest example of evangelistic prayer is our Lord himself. Isaiah 53, 12 tells us, and the New Testament tells us, that he interceded for transgressors. On the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. God answered those prayers with 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost and countless thousands more through the centuries. And he's still doing it. We're part of that testimony. Do we pray for the lost like that? Do we have the passion that inspired John Knox to cry out, Give me Scotland or I die? Is our attitude that of George Whitfield who prayed, Oh Lord, 
give me souls or take my soul. Can we like Henry Martin say, I cannot endure existence if Jesus is not, if Jesus is to be so dishonored? Or in the words of Charles Spurgeon, Lord, save the elect and save some more. Christ's work was his mediating death on the cross as the God-man. The church's work is to pray for the salvation of all men and explain to them Christ's mediation between God and man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our marching orders this morning. We thank you, Father, that it's not just the mission statement of a church or a business or a mission. This is from the word of God. This is what the authoritative apostle Paul told Timothy to be doing in the church in Ephesus. And we believe Timothy was doing that anyway, but nothing wrong with being reminded and nothing wrong with us being reminded of it ourselves today. May we carry it out. May we apply these things to our heart and we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen.